I'm Nicole, and this is the Wild for Change podcast. Today, we're speaking with Ron Sutherland, Chief Scientist of Wildlands Network, who is their in-house animal and rewilding expert. The mission of Wildlands Network is to reconnect, restore, and rewild North America so that life and all its diversity can thrive. Ron has over 25 years of experience in wildlife research. His extensive knowledge of wildlife and natural spaces provides us with a formidable fact-based approach towards conservation. A warm welcome and thank you, Ron, for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Nicole. This is great. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this podcast, as I was saying earlier to you, for a while to talk about rewilding. I wanted to start with always the big question, what inspired you into this journey of doing this work? That's a good question. So for, for me, I'm a child of the, the suburbs of the Triangle area of North Carolina. I grew up in Cary. It was a, a small suburb of, of Raleigh, the capital of North Carolina. And during the, the 1980s, when I was a kid, Cary was growing extremely fast and the 1990s. And basically every little piece of, of natural forest that was near my house got turned into houses before too long. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, there was one one tract of woods that was kind of right behind our neighborhood and uh it's where we used to it was convenient it was where we would go and play as kids with other neighbor kids and, and one time we went over there to go play and and it had been totally wrecked and torn down and the yeah it's like mix of sort of red clay north carolina mud and then all these stumps of the trees that had been pulled out and it was going to be <laughs> basically turned into a big parking lot for a uh a business next door and so that that was just like pretty pretty harsh <laughs> for me as a young kid to see that you know something that I had really enjoyed just be taken away and then you know seeing it happen at at scale and you know and watch watching Carrie go from like 17,000 people when I was born to like 120,000 a few decades later you know it's just wow. you know it wasn't just there it's just everywhere and you know um I'm actually heartened when I go into other parts of the country now that, that aren't quite as developed because I, I see that, you know, that, that it's not everywhere that's developing quite as fast as, as this part of North Carolina is, but a lot of places are. And so that kind of drove home to me the need to uh, to see what I could do to save places for nature and so that the other people have special places and other wildlife special places because there was, you know, one of the first snakes I ever saw was in that that forest and and things like that. So, you know, what can I do to make a difference to, to save some spaces for nature? Yeah. Wow. I, that had to be hard because that was like your playground. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's definitely seared in the memory. Yeah. And I, I think that's sort of traumatic for a, for a child to, you know, where they would go and play and explore and use their imagination. And now it's just turned into a parking lot. Yeah. Wow. That's unfortunate, but you see it everywhere. I mean, you can't get away from it no matter where you go. I mean, I live in the uh, the Chicagoland area and Chicagoland is just so sprawling now. I mean, the 
the suburbs just keep moving further and further and further out where there used to be forests and well, and agriculture too, but um, everything's getting knocked down for housing and development. So can you explain to the listeners what rewilding means? Sure. Yeah, I can try. And uh, (laughs) rewilding, it's a term that was coined in the early 1990s, uh, I think by Dave Foreman and some of his his colleagues. Um, He was one of the founders of Wildlands Network, formerly Wildlands Project. Um, And what he intended was as an alternative vision of ecological restoration. He wanted rewilding to be restoration, but but from the standpoint of, of sort of letting nature rule and putting it back, putting things back. Um, and it was it was based off the idea of wilderness, um, mm-hmm. sort of places where sort of self-willed land, where the where the uh, where nature itself would be in charge. And the idea of restoring wilderness, and so rewilding is, is essentially restoring wilderness, but it has more of a, it's not just the ecosystem and the, the land, but it's also rewilding is, is in particular, it's focused on bringing back the species that might be missing. And a um, good friend of mine, John Davis, who's also uh, you know contemporary with Dave Foreman, co-conspirator with Dave Foreman, a lot of things, and um, and he's the executive director of the Rewilding Institute now, so you should know, but um, he Pretty, pretty well. He said, rewilding is, is giving land back to the wildlife and giving wildlife back to the land. And I think that's a, a great way to put it. It's it's doing both. You're, you're, you know, we need to give spaces back to to wildlife, things that have where we've we've driven species to be extinct or endangered. But also, though in many cases, the land itself is missing the those animals. And so bringing them back is actually going to restore the ecosystems. Um, you know, gray wolves being the great example, right? Uh, out in Yellowstone. So, and why um, is that important for us to do that? Why is it so important to bring the the wildlife back to these areas? It's a great question. I think, you know, what it's easy sometimes to think that if we just you know buy a nice fifty acre natural forest, you know, and 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 protect it and keep the bulldozers out. That everything's going to be fine, and the, the plants will keep growing, and everything, um, the birds will visit, and and it's just going to be good. But the the thing that we've realized in the last thirty or forty years of ecological research is that that um, the way ecosystems are balanced, oftentimes that you know you need the top carnivores, you need the the those species that are at the top of the food chain to regulate what else goes on. And a big example here in the East and in the Midwest would be white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer, in the absence of any any predators or carnivores that are really helping control their populations, then you know they they go to town. They reach really incredible densities, and that has a, a big impact. And the white-tailed deer, of course, are pretty happy to live in in suburbs and sort of suburban parks and, and natural areas and things. But if they don't have predators, then the deer reach too high of densities, and that can really wipe out all the understory plants, all the, the native wildflowers, because the deer get hungry in the winter, especially right. in the spring, they're hungry. And, um, you know, with our trail cameras, it's been one of my, my interesting lessons looking at trail camera pictures is that if you really, if you put a camera out in a, a section of woods and you watch, when there's a lot of deer around, the deer, you might, you know, you don't see this during the day, but you have a camera out with infrared flash at night, you actually see the deer sort of going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth 
And they're really just scouring the land for any little piece of vegetation that's that they can still eat. Um, a lot of times when you visit a forest in a place that has too many deer and it looks lush and green, it's lush and green with the plants that the deer can't eat. And often those are like some sort of invasive, like still right. grass like that. And so that's just one example of, of, you know, we need to bring all the species back. And if we want to have these ecosystems actually survive. Right, and keep that balance. Yeah, I was reading about the bringing the wolves back into when they reintroduced them into Yellowstone and how the elk took over and they overgrazed the land and a lot of the trees weren't growing because they were eating all of the the baby trees and all of this. And so it was like just desecrated in a way. And when they reintroduced the wolves, um, it restored the ecosystem so much so that like the the beavers returned and it was just like it allowed for the biodiversity to flourish with the apex predator being there right right yeah there's a, there's a great video that's that's made the rounds on the internet uh, wolves change rivers i think it is you know tying the the success of wolf restoration in Yellowstone to the recovery of the riparian vegetation, the, the willow and the aspen trees, yeah. willow or more the riparian tree. And, and that's what, you know, once the trees are back, then the beaver could survive and the beaver, you know, uh, create their ponds, which creates water filtration and creates more habitat. The trout are happier. And it's just, uh, yeah, an all around ecological sort of miracle. And right. it's also, you know, it's, it's what ecologists would term a trophic cascade, which is yeah. basically you know, a, a uh, self-propagating food chain effect that starts at the top and goes down, um, in this case, and the wolves, by controlling the elk, um, are definitely influencing the food that the, the elk were eating. So it's, yeah. it's really it's, cool. It's very cool. And it, it, it's really amazing to see how nature can play out like that and how it just sort of can take care of things if, if we're stepping back and letting it do its thing. Right. And that, in a, it, you, what you just said is a, is a great way of summing up rewilding is it's it's kind of the opposite of really management intensive ecological restoration where you're you're trying to to have humans sort of serve every role in, in protecting the ecosystem and restoring everything. In rewilding, it's more about returning that that um, management back to nature and and sort of you know letting evolution run its course and letting putting the species back. And letting things take care of themselves and it's you know i think it's much more efficient to do it that way in many cases right than to manage everything ourselves well it seems like that just from a, a you know for myself an outsider's perspective that nature really knows best <laughs> how, yeah. how to take care of itself other than us stepping in all the time uh, i wanted to ask about there's a concept called continental wildways and um, these are the corridors that Wildlands Network has created um, for conservation projects. Can you share more about that with the listeners? Yeah. So, um, you know, back to John Davis, friend of mine. He's the one that coined the term wildway back in the day. And what he had in mind was, you know, a, a truly continental scale sort of corridor for wildlife. And when you look at North America, which is where he was focused and where we're focused, um, you know, some pretty obvious uh, opportunities for, for continental scale corridors come to light. And, and you know, ones here on the east, the eastern wildway, we call it. You could also call it the Appalachian wildway because the Appalachian mountains form the backbone of 
of a network for nature that that could exist basically from you know from Florida all the way up to Quebec. And and we've we've recently completed a new map showing what the Eastern Wildway could look like. And it's not just one corridor; it's actually a network of corridors and core areas. That's the, the the three C's of rewilding. It's important to bring up. It's the cores, corridors, and carnivores. And you hmm. know the cores are the, the large natural areas that are big enough to sustain like a population of of wolves or mountain lions or other keystone species. And the corridors are what connect those. And then you need the carnivores and or the keystone species, if you pretend that that starts with a C, uh, you need those species back to make the ecosystem work once you've once you've restored it. And so what we've done for the Eastern Wildway has been able to map out what that could actually look like, even in the heavily developed East, um, you know, that there's, there's still this opportunity to create this vision of how all the different natural areas that we've protected in, in this part of the country, and also including Canada, they could actually still be connected with corridors into a, a nice network of habitat. And so the, the wild way of vision, it's it's one of our the tools that we use to help inspire other conservationists to think bigger about what they're doing. Um, you know, wildness network, we don't buy land ourselves, but we we like to think that we have some influence over over what other folks where they might be buying land, where, where they might be protecting land, where they might be working with private landowners to get conservation easements or, or some sort of voluntary conservation okay. activity. Um, and so the, the wildway vision is, is one of the tools we use for that. The other wildways, yeah, the, there's the big one that uh, Michael Soule, kind of the father of conservation biology, used to call the, the spine of the continent, but the Rocky Mountain wildway, or the, we call it the Western wildway sometimes. And that's, you know, the Rockies coming up out of Mexico, going up into Canada. And then there's another one, the, the Pacific Wildway, which is kind of following the Sierra and the, the coastal ranges um, and the Cascades along the, the West Coast. And, and those are the sort of three prominent mountain-based ones. But then there's certainly cases to be made for additional wildways that you could draw in North America for like the Mississippi River, for example, in all the great floodplain habitat that used to exist along the Mississippi, right? Um, you know that is a uh, that river certainly ties together a huge part of of the center part of the continent. So, um, so yeah, it's it, the wildway concept is just this idea that we can stitch the stitch the continent back together using these long um, north south corridors. They also have the advantage of being north south corridors. They have the advantage of being particularly useful for climate change adaptation. Because a lot of species need to move in response to this ra really rapid human human induced climate change we're seeing right now. Right. Species need to move, and as it gets warmer, they're going to want to move north. And so, having these corridors that run from south to north is really important for that. So, lots of good reasons. So, does Wildlands Network do you collaborate with other people to establish these connections of corridors? Yeah, yeah. So our 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 you know. The way we, we prefer to work would be to, to partner with, a, say, a land trust that's out there buying land mm -hmm. and show them our wildway maps and say, you know, this is this is this corridor here that goes through this area you know, for your area of influence. You know, and, and we would love to, to, to work together to try to protect this particular corridor. And that is happening. It's it's you know, we've we've taken our time getting to the point of, of where we're really getting this implemented. Um, yeah, it's a grand a grand vision. I think a lot of people have bought into, but it, seeing progress on the ground now is really great. There's there's definitely uh, some some good opportunities to to uh, 
you know, mark some progress that we're making. Oh, that's um, great. You know, and then like one of the one of the pieces of the sort of the great uh, Western Wildway, um, the northern half of that would be uh, you know better termed Yellowstone Yukon, which is a group that we were affiliated with back in the day. And now it's its own really strong standalone group that's working on connecting sort of yellow, the yellow, greater Yellowstone ecosystem up into the, the wilds of, of Canada, the Yukon. And there they've done some great work showing how much conservation has happened within that, that sort of mega corridor to, to establish that linkage. Um, so that wildlife nice. can, you know, things like grizzly bears can actually have a, a firm connection um, along that Northern spine of, of the whole continent. Oh, that's fantastic. That's tremendous. I remember uh, visiting Banff and we were seeing a corridor built across a highway for, you know, wildlife like the the bears to, to get across. How do you work on building corridors where, you know, these species would naturally migrate, but now there's like a four lane highway intersecting where they would migrate? Yeah. So that's actually a, a, another big part of what we do at Wildlands Network is focus on on getting wildlife across roads. And the you know one solution is to avoid building road new roads in 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 the wrong places. And so we yeah. certainly advocate for that. But in many cases, you know the, the highway network's already there, and we're focused on on healing <laughs> the wounds of nature and trying to 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 reconnect places. And the way to do that, there's this great tool called a, a wildlife road crossing, which is what you saw in Banff. Mm -hmm. And and those are actual structures that allow wildlife to go either over or under um, you know, busy highways. And a lot of times you'd want to put them, from my standpoint, I like to keep them separate from the idea of corridors. Like a corridor is, is the, the vegetation that connects a place, one place to another. Okay. And um, in a sense, it's the habitat. And then a, a wildlife road crossing is where, you know, if a corridor crosses a road and you want the animals to be able to move along that corridor, then you need a crossing structure so the animals can get across. And they really work, they work well and they work even better. Uh, they can actually reduce roadkill by like as much as 90% of, oh, of wildlife if, if they use uh, the right kind of fencing because the fencing sort of steers the animals to the right places. And then they they are actually pretty happy to use the, the crossings. Um, yeah, Banff is probably the best studied set of wildlife crossings in the world. Um, huge set of them up there on the, the Trans-Canadian Highway that goes right through the middle of the National Park. Yes, there it's, it does. It's yeah. not, it's, that's a core area in my little, my lingo here. And they, they you know, had this road going right through the, the core area, which is really bad for the grizzly bears there and the wolves and everything else. Yeah. So when they were four-laning that road, they had the wisdom to think maybe we could actually do something better for wildlife. Um, so they put up these crossings, they put up the fencing. And if they um the funny thing is that if they had gone out and studied those crossings for three years, they would have seen that not that much was using them, um, especially in terms of like the grizzly bears. But then years four and five is when the bears actually found them and really started using them. Okay. Then, you know, now years later, they've actually been able to document that, you know, once these, once the mother bears find these crossings, they're actually teaching it to their cubs and they have intergenerational knowledge and culture of how to get across this busy highway they you know that's a, the great thing about, about intelligent mammals like that they can really right. teach each other how to do these things and so there's just been this great uptick in wildlife using this this crossing so really great I, success story i'm glad to know that i was going to ask like how how do you help support the wildlife to know that those crossings are there 
you know, I would be on pins and needles thinking about, okay, you know, how long is it going to take them to find it? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a really funny radio interview somewhere. This lady who calls in and complains that they put a, somebody put up a, a deer crossing sign in the wrong place. And why don't they just move the sign so that they can get the deer to cross somewhere else? <laughs> and that is not the way <laughs> to, to do that. Um no, you know, the wildlife are going to want to cross the road where they want to cross. And so it's up to us to use science. You know, we get out there and we, we track the animals with GPS collars. We look, you put up cameras in the woods along the road and see where the hot spots of activity are. And then the, the less fun job is to go out and count the, actually the dead animals on the road and see where they're actually getting hit. Yeah, that's and, unfortunate. You know, we, we've done all those things at Wildlands Network for different projects and, you know, put it all together and it gives you a pretty good idea. This is This spot right here is where we really need a wildlife crossing to be put in and then um you know and usually it's in an area that that's that's fairly natural it's not just one crossing you need systems of, of crossings because um you know you don't just want to fence things off um it's important for wildlife to be able to move freely across across these roads and so you know rather than thinking of one big crossing it's also it's quite important to put out put out lots of them in a series with fencing between them so you can really return um, some semblance of habitat connectivity across that road. Right. So yeah, we, we, we see roads as a, as a huge part of you know, the, the barrier to wildlife movement in, in North America. So trying to fix those is a big, a big thing. And you know, Wildlands Network has been one of the, the, the groups that has pushed really hard for, um, you know, the, there's actually a, a pilot program, Wildlife Crossing pilot program in President Biden's infrastructure bill and we helped push for that $350 million to build wildlife crossings um, over five years. Turns out that's not even very much money. I was going <laughs> to ask if that was even things. enough. Yeah. No, no, it's, no, it's nowhere near enough. But it's it's the first really dedicated investment by the federal government in, in building these and helping states build these crossings. It's, the, um, it's a competitive grant program. We just had the first round uh, of applications that were, came in uh, August 1st. And we were involved in a number of, of those and trying to get you know, states to, to pick the places in their state that are the highest priority or the best opportunity for, for putting in crossings and getting some of those funded. And I think what we're going to find is that, yeah, the, the need, I think the number of applications they've got is, is greatly going to exceed the number of how much money there is. And because uh, as you know, anybody that's driven around <laughs> the countryside knows you know, roadkill is a really extensive problem. It's yeah. terrible. And I think, I don't know how many millions of animals get killed each it's a year. Lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and you millions. don't even want to think about it because it's so horrific and like how much we've encroached into their natural migration routes and where they're used to looking for food. And now they're having to deal with, you know, a big car coming both ways and having to cross traffic. It's just awful. Yeah. The, the encouraging thing about wildlife crossings is that they have a, a surprising degree of, of bipartisan support, sort of oh, cross-cultural in the U.S. Like, so, so far, I really haven't you know, run into anybody that's just strongly opposed to building crossings for getting animals across highways, because just there's nobody that really wants to see animals uh, slaughtered. And, and left on the on the road by cars. Um, right. I guess vultures are the only <laughs> lobby right. group that that really like <laughs> they really like roadkill, but everybody else. And so that so it's you know 
um, states with all kinds of different politics are being really excited about about building wildlife crossing. So that's, yeah, that's good that's, to hear. And that's yeah. that's huge progress. Even to have it, you know, the infrastructure um, there to create these crossings for the wildlife within our federal government is is a massive step forward. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for supporting all of that. Of course. You and yeah, Wildlands no, it's, Network, it's, that's, that's great news. I, I'm very happy to hear. How much land do you think, how much more land do we need to reconnect to help wildlife not only survive, but thrive? <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, and and much keener minds than I have, have contemplated it for 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 decades now, and I think, um, you know, Edward O. Wilson, one of the the great heroes of the conservation movement, published yeah. a book um, back in 2016, making a case for half Earth, protecting half of the net, protecting half of the Earth's natural areas, including the the oceans too. Right. And with the goal of of saving, say, 85, 90 percent of the Earth's species, and I think that, and that's based on on relationships between species and area that that he and others observed and on islands as you get islands of different sizes they get as the islands get bigger they get more and more species you can actually calculate sort of ramp that up to the entire earth and say how much how much of the earth should we protect and save set aside for wildlife and for for natural ecosystems and the answer is at least half <laughs> right um and it's not that people can't live in that half it's definitely not that people can't enjoy that half of the thing but if but if we want to have clean water <laughs> And functioning ecosystems and we want to have all these species of wildlife survive then a network of habitat that covers something like half of half of the u.s half of north america i think is is really essential and that's what our our, our eastern wildlife map um uh, was intentionally designed to illustrate what half earth could look like for this oh, side of okay. thing. so it actually it does actually cover about half um of the the lands and waters of of the east coast and I think it's a it's a beautiful vision. I think I think most people, if they think about it, would like to live in a place. Um, it would actually do, yeah, it would do wonders for the the global global real estate market in a sense. But for you know, everybody wants to live in a place that's protected in that way and that's going to stay natural and beautiful. Nobody wants to live in a place, you know, that that is just going to be overrun um, and things. So I think it. It's not so much that people don't want to 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 live in in that kind of sort of visionary future world. It's just we don't know how to get there from where we are now, which is a society that's really stuck on growth and stuck on on development as a major economic activity, as opposed to we should probably be stuck on restoration as a major economic activity because it really could be a source of of income for a, a lot of people, restoring our ecosystems, bringing nature back. And uh, you know, creating the world a world that we actually want to live in. Right. I think our priorities are upside down. Yes. <laughs> and and then for so many reasons. I mean, one reason is just um, living on a healthy planet uh, for everybody. Is I mean, that's the basis of how we're all here. Is you know, being maintained by nature. Yeah. Too too easy to forget. As we right. you know, drive to the grocery store and back and things, just how dependent we are on on actual natural ecosystems and 
and ecosystem functions like pollination, the, you know, the, the bees, all the native bees that we need to be saving, not just the honeybee, but all the native bees and wasps right. and everything to do all the pollinating of our plants. We can't lose those things. We can't do that ourselves. So right. you know, we really, really need to, to think about, you know, water, water quality, water regeneration and, and, and groundwater recharge. You need natural areas to do that. You can't exactly. pave everything. <laughs> you can't pave over everything, right? Yeah, because then there's no there's no um resource for the water, you know, like you said, for the recharge. If the water has nowhere to go when it does rain, it's just falling on pavement. It can't be absorbed by land. We right. just lost we just lost that ability to have that as a source of water for ourselves. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's a I think it's a great vision, Half Earth. And I love the blueprint that Wildlands Network created for the eastern side along the Appalachians um, to show what, what is possible. I think that's great foresight. Yeah, yeah. No, we're we're proud of that. Proud yeah. of that effort. And you know, I'm hoping my kids and their kids might get to see, you know, that the implementation progress being much further along, you know, as we go and we've we've protected a lot of things in this country and you know a lot of what's missing is is the connections between those those protected areas yeah and so we really if we can really focus on that for a generation of, of protecting the habitat connectivity um then that'll get us pretty far but we also need to put the species back things like the red wolf and the you know the florida panther eastern cougar and things like that in the east um yeah, there's there's lots of room for for grizzly bear reintroductions out west. Uh, California, yeah. sort of looking at you there, <laughs> and uh, right. you know the um, so that yeah, there's there's lots to do in the west. There's a lot of public land already, and in many ways, I think the west, if we could just protect that public land from being destroyed from mining and 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 oil and gas exploration and so forth and keep the habitat on that public land, then we're actually at or even slightly above the 50% threshold in, in large parts of the, the Western US. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's great. Yeah, no. Yeah, if we could stay that way. Right, we gotta keep it that way. So it's, yeah. it's a lot of defense out West. Right. But in, in the East and the Midwest, there's a lot of restoration that needs to happen. Um, you know, we need to, to be replanting the tall grass prairies on the upper Midwest. Oh, for sure, yeah. Native grasslands and in, in the southeast, it's the longleaf pine ecosystem that was like long, like the tall grass, the the longleaf pine savannas, which in some ways is more a grassland than a forest. And those were just were just you know decimated by you know the the arrival of Europeans and all the stuff that we've done there. So there's just a huge amount of of ecological restoration that needs to happen in this country, and I hope we can get that going. I hope that, so you know, too. The Wildway Vision is is a kind of a roadmap for how you could how you could do that how you could protect protect and restore corridors, where to put the the, the road crossings so the animals can get from one place to the next, and just really tie it all together. Yeah, it just takes foresight, planning, and actual um, knowing that okay, well we've we can't continue to live this way and continue to just destroy these areas for the sake of development. There's got to be some like I said, foresight into how we approach our, our future for not just us, but, you know, for the wildlife, for everybody. Right. I mean, it's, 
the, the parable about the, you know, the, um, you know, when we get society to a place where people are planting trees that they're never going to sit in the, the shade of the tree, um, you know, that's that kind of wisdom that we need yeah. in this culture right now. It's definitely missing I agree. in a lot of ways, but I think, yeah, a lot of, some of us have it, <laughs> I hope. And I think that as we grow the movement, I think more and more people are going to, to catch on to the idea that we actually can, you know, recover nature on this continent and all the other continents too. So. Right. Right. And you, and you're already leading the way. So. Lots of I great partners. Yeah. 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 Lots of great people working on this. So. Yeah. Can you tell us about the rewilding of the red wolves? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've been involved with red wolves for a while. Um, I wasn't, I was kind of a kid and actually in North Carolina when they, they actually first reintroduced the wolves. Um, but uh, the red wolf was the original wolf of the Southeast, as far as we know. And they, they kind of went up into possibly as far, far North as New York. Uh, it's really hard to draw that line now. Oh, wow. Yeah. hundred years later, but the, the wolves on the East coast were wiped out by settlers fairly quickly. I think the last wolves in North Carolina were lost probably by around the year 1900, 1905. Hmm. And, um, you know, it, it seemed like the red wolf was headed to extinction, much like the the Carolina parakeet or the ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, but uh, but then in the, the 1960s, you know, there's a really big flash of environmental uh, environmentalism and, and passion for saving the environment. And that translated into the, the U.S. government launching, I think, it, um, 1966, I think, the precursor to the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and one of the first species that they decided to designate as, as endangered was the red wolf. And they weren't even sure at that point if there were any red wolves left to oh, save. Wow. Uh, same with Florida panthers. They, you know, they didn't know if Florida panthers were still out there or not. Um, they went and looked and they they luckily found a few red wolves and they found a few Florida panthers. And the, the red wolves they found were in these coastal marshes down in on the, the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana in that little corner. And it's probably not great red wolf habitat, but that's just where that's where the last little safe haven was, hmm. uh, you know, the the Rivendell for the for the red wolves. And even that wasn't very safe because the last few wolves were surrounded by invading coyotes that were coming in to take over the 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 niche that was left by the wolves i don't personally think that coyotes can fill that niche very well um not without a, a whole lot of evolving in the meantime but um so these wolves were on the gulf coast the federal government decided that the best thing for them to do was actually to go and, and catch the last red wolves put them in captivity and then find a way to restore them uh somewhere else where they could be more protected mm -hmm. And this was back when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was particularly uh, considerably more bold, I think, than they are now after decades of abuse from from Congress. And and so they they brought the wolves in captivity, declared them extinct in the wild in 1980. By 1987, they were ready to start releasing them again, and they picked Eastern North Carolina because they thought it was pretty far away from the coyotes. And there was a big new national wildlife refuge called Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge, over 100,000 acres. They thought that could support a, a fairly large population of red wolves, which is a bit of an overestimate. But um, and so they did. They just went ahead and returned the wolves. And it was actually the first case of a top carnivore being restored from extinction in the wild 
anywhere in the world. And so for that, you know, we can be, we can be proud. We can be not proud of the fact that we destroyed, you know, so much of the wolves habitat, shot all the wolves, shot all the wolves food and everything else to, to, to nearly drive them to extinction. But we can be proud that, that somebody back in the sixties and seventies was, was brave enough to stand up for this species and, and save them just really at the brink of extinction. And so they, they put them back in North Carolina and the population actually grew, did, did pretty well. Um, it would, that, that effort served as the model for what they did in Yellowstone. Yeah, the Yellowstone oh, wow. wolves were returned to 1995. And so they had the benefit of, of learning from the Red Wolf Program. And, you know, if you ask people about wolf restoration, they're going to tell you about gray wolves. But the Red Wolf was actually the, the first. And um, it's been much quieter. You know, the, it has, for most of the time, the wolves, Red Wolves were not that controversial. Unfortunately, around 2012, there were some political shifts in North Carolina and some local uh, folks decided to kind of use that opportunity to to see if they could rid themselves of the sort of federal federal Red Wolf program. And oh, so they wow. kind of launched a misinformation campaign and people started shooting the wolves again. And you know, that's one of the one of the interesting differences between uh, wolves and coyotes. In the, in the history in the historical context of the United States is that pretty much anywhere in the US where where uh, sort of modern settlers decided to get rid of wolves, they were able to do so. Um, the wolves just are too big and too dignified and and you know they have just too much of a sense that they were at the top of the ecosystem that makes them really easy to, to get rid of uh, unfortunately. but then, everywhere we've tried to get rid of coyotes it has not worked <laughs> and coyotes sort of laugh in our face and they outbreed our attempts to 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 eradicate them and everything else but the the folks in north carolina you know eventually coyotes showed up and people were are kind of still reacting badly to that thing and you know it's there's this the next door app that many people are on sort of neighborhood app yeah so every other week somebody's complaining that they, they heaven forbid saw a coyote in their neighborhood and so people are very reactive to coyotes and that included the people down in the red wolf area in north carolina and um you know that it came to pass that um yeah, the state wildlife commission actually tried to allow nighttime coyote hunting in the red wolf area which would have been kind of a huge disaster for the for the red wolves and um you know some environmental groups fought them off. Southern Environmental Law Center and other groups sort of fought that off and had a settlement that said, no, you can't do nighttime hunting for coyotes in this area because you can't tell you by can't spotlight. Tell. Right. Yeah, you can't tell a wolf from a, a coyote. Red wolves are, are smaller than gray wolves. They're kind of in between size between coyotes and, and gray wolves. And so nobody could tell. So they stopped it, but that was like the perfect opportunity for a backlash against the wolves. And so unfortunately from, from 2012 to like, 2020 or so the the wolf population went from like 120 which is not that much it's not that many only, no but it went down to about eight oh, <laughs> again come on and so yeah so the the history of the the red wolf rewilding program um is is one of of cycles and and that was a really harsh cycle to have experienced firsthand because that's you know when i was working on it and the um yeah, the wolves were very nearly driven extinct in the wild again. 
There's a captive After population. After all of that work yes, to, yeah, it, to bring them back and then only for them to get decimated once again. 